Hey, welcome everyone uh, to the Careers in Army Medicine podcast. Uh, today we have a very special guest, uh, Colonel Jahadigman uh, from San Antonio. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna go ahead and uh, let Sergeant Fitzwater take this over. Dot here, Sergeant First Class Todd Fitzwater with the Cleveland Medical Recruiting Station, and I'm joined by First Sergeant Justin Wainick of the Columbus Medical Recruiting Company, and Staff Sergeant Michael Sharps of the Akron Medical Recruiting Station. Well, we are extremely privileged today to have world-renowned trauma surgeon Dr. Jay Jahanaman with us today. Uh, Dr. Jay, you have been uh, served in the military since 1990, and you're currently a colonel in the United States Army Reserve. Uh, you completed uh, combat deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan. I want to say about seven of those and received multiple commendations for your outstanding life-saving work and all that. And sir, we're very privileged to have you with us and join us today. And uh, how are you doing today, sir? Oh, it's great. It's great to be with all of you guys. And uh, it's a real privilege to be on the podcast with you today. And um, you're too kind. Uh, I am uh, just a general surgeon, but I have certainly been privileged to, to have a long career and being a military surgeon has been a big part of it, which is why I'm kind of glad to be on here today and share some of those thoughts. I've had a had a spectacular opportunity with a long career, both in the civilian and the military side. So I was anxious to share some of those thoughts today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, we're privileged to have you with us, sir. Um, I would like to start off by, by asking you, um, what is one amazing story that you have? And I know you have several, but what is one that really stands out to you that you could share with us? Well, I'll kind of bookend it. Um, I'm going to end with a story we talked about before the role. Um, but on my first deployment, so um, you're right. I, my, I got into military medicine because I was, uh, had the opportunity to go to medical school through something called HPSP, Health Profession Scholarship Program. I uh, had built up a lot of debt going to college and the military scholarship program uh, got me through medical school. Uh, went through general surgery training, trauma and critical care, uh, and all as a reservist uh, in the inactive reserves. And then actually my first uh, years of duty were at Wilford Hall. And I actually entered uh, as an Air Force reservist. Um, transitioned back into the civilian world in the mid 90s. And then in 2001, obviously our world changed. Um, in 2003, I had my first deployment with the Air Force in a small, austere uh, surgical facility. Uh, we had one operating room. We were a EMEDS 25, which is essentially about like a forward surgical team. Uh, we were in a place called Talil, Iraq, and we saw a modest number of casualties, but uh, the one that changed my life was uh, we were uh, working on a Saturday, got a call from the gate that an ambulance from the nearby town was there and they had a young child in the back. Uh, and that child had been injured about 10 days earlier by picking up an anti-personnel device uh, out of curiosity and it exploded, killing his brother and mortally or grievously wounding him. He lost an eye, lost an arm and had an open abdomen. Um, to make a long story short, over the next uh, approximately four weeks, we would operate on this young nine-year-old child some 12 times in a tent with military medicine and uh, the, the colleagues and the tools we had been taught. Um, and uh, we were able to stabilize him, uh, that young man, through um, 
some real miracles uh, of both medicine uh, and military uh, uh, service. Uh, actually would eventually be airlifted by an Air Force CCAT team to Germany uh, and then in an air refueled flight would make it all the way out to California where a pediatric hospital had volunteered to take him in. Um, that was in 2003 and a little bit earlier this year. Uh, I was privileged to see the graduation video of that young man uh, when he graduated from uh, his uh, college equivalent uh, and we still stay in touch and the American College of Surgeons actually uh, made him a highlight because he was the first uh, combatant or child or injured person in the theater to actually have a wound back applied uh, and the young man's doing very, very well. So that was a journey and an odyssey I'll never forget. I'm so proud of the team we took care of uh, him. Uh, that was my first deployment. As you mentioned, I have had the opportunity to have deployed to Iraq uh, on a number of occasions in Afghanistan in the Air Force being a surgeon and a sea catter. Um, and then my career uh, continued in the civilian world. I worked primarily uh, at the University of Cincinnati and uh, about a year and a half ago, I made a decision to uh, spend the last part of my career full-time uh, doing the thing that I really enjoy the most. So I transitioned back here to Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, where I'm working uh, in the contractor status for the uh, critical care and trauma surgery service. Um, the bookend story was about four and a half months ago, uh, we received a soldier who had an incredible story where Army medicine has come in, in, in the war years. Uh, this was an Army Ranger who was on a mission uh, when they took some indirect fire, but one of the fragments from the mortar round actually hit him, striking his hand grenade that was on his web belt, detonating the hand grenade. Uh, obviously a devastating injury right then and there. He was with a squad, he is a Ranger, and was with his Ranger squad, the element of about 15 strong. Um, over the past five to seven years, the life-saving opportunities to, uh, provided by whole blood transfusions have become increasingly apparent. And Army medicine, particularly Ranger medicine and the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care has pushed the envelope such that in today's um, operational environment, the Ranger medics will be carrying whole blood uh, with them or have the opportunity to transfuse whole blood. Uh, so this Army Ranger, uh, when the grenade detonated, it uh, took off a large portion of his hip uh, and resulted in a traumatic amputation and the loss of the same side arm. Uh, the Ranger medics were on top of him immediately. They applied tourniquets as they should and they began applying compression dressings to the pelvis area. But most importantly, that medic who attended to him was carrying two units of whole blood in a Ranger ready box, which uh, kept the blood cold. So um, he, in addition to providing life-saving hemorrhage control, immediately began transfusing two units of blood while a medevac was being called for. The casualty responded to the two units of whole blood. Uh, blood pressure uh, improved, his pulse came down. Um, but the story's not, the story is just beginning because after those two units of whole blood, because of the tactical situation, rotary wing evacuation was still about 45 minutes to an hour away. Unbelievably, but 
it's still hard for me to, to realize, but having been on the committees that helped looked at all this, um, we realized that whole blood, oh, whole blood is life-saving. And if we don't have it already harvested, we can harvest it from other members of that ranger unit. So the rangers actually type themselves uh, and the rangers who are O, either positive or negative, are identified. They know who they are. And in a situation such as this, when more whole blood was necessary, they actually carry transfusion bags in their rucksacks. So the medic called for two of the members of the squadron who were known to be O donors to go ahead and lay down and go ahead. The uh, medics harvested a unit of blood from two of the rangers in that element. So in addition to two units of whole blood already uh, carried in a ready box, two additional units of warm, fresh whole blood in the middle of the night, in the dark, were harvested and given to that casualty, which provided enough stabilization that the casualty uh, was evacuated by rotary wing to what's called a forward surgical team. Uh, the forward surgical team received the casualty at about 90 minutes from wounding. Um, a forward surgical team is staffed by a surgeon and an orthopedic surgeon. They have some operative capabilities, but their primary role was to do exactly what they did that night, which was to further stabilize. Uh, they addressed the large pelvic wound, got a degree of hemostasis, uh, continued to transfuse with whole blood as they had the capability at their um, role two out there. Uh, and then they were prepared to immediately evacuate that casualty to the larger Roll 3 uh, over at Bagram Air Base. So they had the casualty for approximately an hour and a half to two hours uh, while they're stabilizing, transfusing, uh, trying to get surgical hemostasis. And then the casualties moved to Bagram. Bagram is uh, what we call a Roll 3, but really the equivalent of a civilian Roll 1. Casually arrive there probably at about the four hour mark after wounding and go straight to the operating room where over the course of about a three and a half hour operation, he gets a definitive amputation, the pelvis is further stabilized, the arm stabilized. He received about an additional 40 units of blood in that operation uh, and comes out now um, with a real fighting chance for survival. Con -con in the meantime, while this is going on, it's, it's understood how sick this casualty is going to be and the likelihood that he's going to need advanced aggressive en route care was recognized. So the, the uh, ECLS or the ECMO team from Brook Army Medical Center right here, led by Colonel Phil Mason, was launched at about the six hour mark and begins the process of flying over there to meet the casualty uh, en route. So they're aerial refueled and they... Uh, I honestly don't remember all the details. I don't know if they transited through a long but they are patients at our Bagram had continued to stabilize the patient. The ECMO team um, actually is over there now. And what's also amazing to me in my long uh, history of practice of trauma medicine, you know, the whole blood transfusion has really dramatically changed the impact of these kind of resuscitations on the lungs. Clearly, 20 years ago, this patient would have had a very bad case of ARDS after this kind of trauma, but with all the whole blood transfusion and a very very limited amount of crystalloid, um, his lungs actually were doing reasonably well. 
the team had gone over anticipating he might actually require ECMO. He did not, but he did require uh, continuous renal replacement therapy. Uh, this is all done by the ECMO team. They really do both ECMO and any form of extracorporeal life support. So Bagram had had the opportunity. Bagram does have CRT. They placed him on CRT and the casualty was picked up by Colonel Mason and his team. CRT was continued. I do know that from Bagram back all the way to Brook Army Medical Center, that was one continuous flight, two refuelings in flight, and that casualty actually gets back to Brook Army Medical Center well, somewhere about the 36 to 40 hour mark. And that casualty was cared for at the ISR and the burn center, um, underwent multiple debridements. Uh, but it survived and is actually now uh, in the process of uh, being transitioned into rehab. He'll uh, return to the Center for the Intrepid here at Brook Army Medical Center, uh, where he'll meet the most sophisticated rehab team uh, that there is. Uh, and uh, his prosthetic for his lower extremity will be developed as for his upper arm. Uh, and. Uh, I spoke to the team taking care of that troop. He's been discharged a while back and is waiting to have sufficient maturation of his wounds uh, that he'll actually end up with the CFI. So those are the kind of incredible stories. I, you know, that clearly um, this would not have been a case that, that it, the wonderful civilian trauma centers I've been exposed to um, with all their expertise probably would not have survived. Um, but the lessons learned uh, the use of whole blood, which has really been pushed um, quite aggressively by, and appropriately by the military. And interestingly, um, being a, a somewhat of a student of history, uh, it really isn't an advance. It's really just a return to what we did first in World War I, uh, then in World War II, then in Korea, and in Vietnam. Um, we are now really pushing whole blood. Two incredible stories, sir. I, you know, like you said, booked in. Um, the, the selflessness and the professionalism and the degree of skill involved in those two stories is just outstanding. Uh, you know, First Sergeant Waning, you have been deployed as well, and you were in the Baghdad ER during your time. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And then I know you have a question for uh, Colonel Johanneman. Uh, yeah, sir, I really appreciate those those questions. It definitely, you know, brings me back from uh, during my time on deployment. Um, like Sergeant Fitzwater had said, I, I've deployed a couple of times. Um, first time was a, as a line medic, is what we call line medic, so the guy that's on the ground with the with the infantry. Um, basically, job was to stabilize them, uh, our casualties, the best that we could for uh, medevac to be able to come pick them up and, and take them to the next echelon of care. Um, then, uh, second deployment I started off as a, uh, aviation medic. So I was actually the guy that was picking those casualties up and keeping them stabilized in order to get them to that next echelon and basically get them to, to you, uh, to the surgeon to be able to provide the, you know, those life-saving, um, medical, uh, treatments that they, that they needed. And then I also, um, spent some time during that deployment in the Baghdad ER, uh, and it, it was there that. Um, I truly understood, uh, you know, when, when we talk about the, the need for, for physicians within the army, uh, during that deployment, we were the busiest trauma hospital in the world at the time. 
uh, and we had three ER docs that was um, on staff during that during that uh, deployment. Uh, so they were very busy, um, just between uh, different, you know, mass casualty situations and things like that. Very busy, but the amount of experience um, and the amount of lives that those those three doctors saved um, is is a countless number. I, I wouldn't be able to even keep up with that number. Um, and so one of the things that um, when I'm talking, when the Army asked me to come out um, to recruiting and help find new uh, medical professionals to join the Army, it's something that I took very, very seriously because I've been in that situation where we didn't necessarily have the amount of doctors that, that we needed at the time um, to be able to do the things that we needed to do. And it was, uh, I was asked to do, you know, some of those treatments. Um, so one of the things that I tell a lot about um, to a physician that might be interested in joining the army is uh, they, they asked me what it's like being uh, an army doctor. Obviously I've never been one, so I can't really tell them, but I do tell them that it's an opportunity to be able to practice pure medicine. Um, and what I mean by that is, is, you know, in the army medicine, uh, we, we provide the treatment that is needed um, when and where it needs to be done. Um, so with your experience having served, uh, in the military as a physician for so long and also uh, on the civilian side. Um, maybe you could share a little bit with us about what, what you think maybe the biggest difference is between um, you know, practice of medicine within the Army and then practice of medicine on the, on the civilian side. Yeah, th yeah. thanks, Justin. Uh, I'll tell you what I you know, it's, it is really great being here because I get to be around the, the young residents, the military residents who will be the next ones out there. But I tell them uh, what I would tell, uh, and I had the opportunity of working with you recruiters to talk about people making that jump. Deployments are the best of everything and they're the worst of everything. It, it is a challenge, uh, I guess, uh, you know, over seven of them, and I think I've got one or two left in me. Um, it is not, it's not all fun and games. Uh, there are some really bad times. There's some really boring times. But if you want to be in a place where you're really practicing medicine and you have a team that has one common cause, nobody likes being in the middle uh, of a desert uh, in a tent uh, eating horrible food. Um, but when that casually hits that gurney, there's not a single uh, question about what we're there for. Um, there is not anyone who won't do anything to make sure we do everything right for that casualty, be that one of our own, or be that a civilian, or be that a child. Um, it is, uh, it's also really kind of cool, um, and I'm obviously a lot older, and as I teach the young residents, um, it is, it is, I get to be a general general surgeon, and I go back and I have to use a stethoscope, and I have to use my hands and my head, I don't have a CAT scanner, I don't have an MRI, I have to uh, do those things I was taught to do. So um, it is pure um, and it, it can be terrifying, uh, but um, I've left every one of those with a sense of satisfaction. Um, I also leave every deployment uh, with things that I try to take back to the civilian centers I've worked at and change, you know, so for instance, in the mid 2000s, you know, I saw point of care testing, I saw tags, I saw tourniquets, 
um, I saw whole blood. I'll never forget the first time I saw whole blood. Now, it took 10 years to be able to translate that to the civilian world, but it's fascinating. Those of you listening, uh, you might may or may not be aware, here in the city of San Antonio, because of uh, military medicine's presence, we have a great presence with Brook Army Medical Center, uh, Wilford Hall, uh, and um, the Institute of Surgical Research. Uh, in this city, whole blood's carried on the EMS rigs, it's carried in the helicopters, uh, and we are transfusing uh, at our trauma center, we'll see whole blood almost daily coming in from the pre-hospital environment. We have whole blood now on our massive transfusion protocol. It's really dramatically changed the way I can take care of patients. Um, so yeah, it is, uh, I remember a young surgeon I was deployed with um, coming to me and griping saying, this isn't the standard of care, I don't know how to practice. And I walked him to the edge of the tent and we opened up the flat and the flap and looked at the desert. And I said, well, this isn't the standard of care either, but it is medicine. And it's very good medicine, very effective medicine. And it's amazing what you can do out there um, with a few simple skill sets and these life-changing um, advances, which again, really are returning to what we've learned a long time ago. It's, it's unfortunately true that the study of shock and trauma is always advanced during war. It's just so important we don't forget those lessons. And that's what's fun about being down here is making sure that the next generation is going to remember those. Yeah, it's got to be interesting in your position, sir, you know, with your years of experience to be able to work with those young uh, Army residents at this point. Uh, it's got to be uh, pretty neat to be able to give back in that capacity, would you say? Oh, it's it's the very best. It's the very best. And to, yeah, that's um, I think that's what really has reawakened me and, and, and has, has just been a, been a real joy for the last year. And it's interesting, too, sir, because we find that often in what we're doing in Army medicine uh, in, in recruiting, the recruiting aspect is that we have the younger physicians that come out. Um, that want to get involved and are looking to pay back their student loans. And then we also have, you know, uh, some of our older uh, providers that want to come in and they just want to be able to give back at that time and share the knowledge and experiences that they've had over the years and then they want to join our team. So it's really where you're at in, in, uh, in life at the time that uh, determines which path you're going to take and, and how you come to us in, in Army Medicine. Sergeant Sharps, I know you have a few questions for uh, Colonel Jahanneman. Yeah, sir. Um, so I was also one of those ground medics, uh, same as a uh, first Sergeant Wainick. Um, and actually we had an experience when I was out in uh, Hawaii where one of, one of the medics from our sister unit, uh, was in a, a motorcycle versus car incident and being a medic, he, as soon as that happened, he knew to put a tourniquet on himself. And when the civil authorities showed up, so the EMS, they said that tourniquets were not part of their protocol and forced him to remove that tourniquet. Well, didn't force him. He was fighting them off. Um, and he said until he lost consciousness, uh, then they removed the tourniquet uh, after he lost consciousness. Uh, he did end up losing his leg. But uh, with that, as every junior medic knows uh, tourniquet first. If you see bright red blood, go ahead and put it on. Um, and that's even getting pushed down to 
everybody else. So it doesn't matter if you're a cook, you're a mechanic, you're one of the door kickers. Everybody knows that in the military. Um, what besides whole blood, we've already covered that kind of, um, what else have you seen has been the, the biggest medical advancement that has come from the military and transferred to the civilian sector? Yeah, you know, I think you go back to the Boston Marathon bombing and we learned, so, so there's a saying that all of you are familiar with, these lessons are lessons written in blood and the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care early in 2004 and five, we're already starting to track Another another one of those lessons we have to relearn. Tourniquets have been in the military armamentarium since the Civil War. For some reason, we decided they were not uh, that they were dangerous, uh, but clearly that's not the case. Uh, Colonel Holcomb in the Institute of Surgical Research, Dr. Craig, uh, Colonel Craig uh, looked at our early our early results with tourniquets. Clearly, they saved lives. So, as you all know, uh, we're out of uniform uh, in theater if we don't have the tourniquet tab visible on our blouses or on our uh, ACU uh, pant leg. Uh, and uh, you're right, uh, I can't remember a time in my last 12 years of deploying where I ever saw a casualty come in in a military setting where the tourniquet was applied. But quite honestly, in the civilian world, there's still times I see EMS bring people in. Now, those are getting fewer and fewer. But you go back to the Boston Marathon bombing, I had the opportunity to talk to a couple of Boston firefighters. And you can actually, if you go out in the press and look for the pictures, you'll see a couple of civilian patients being wheeled around or evacuated with traumatic amputations and homemade tourniquets, uh, cravats or handkerchiefs and no effective tourniquets. Well, we hadn't penetrated. The, the Boston, interestingly enough, the Boston EMS did have tourniquets, but they were all in their EMS rigs and the rigs were parked a couple of miles away from the final uh, the finish line. So when the bomb went off, they weren't immediately in their pockets. So that's been one of the other translational lessons. You know, we have transcivic acid. We have the use of whole blood, as we've talked about a lot. Um, we have uh, laboratory-wise uh, TAG testing and the management of coagulopathy. All those lessons learned, shared with our civilian colleagues. It's It's been a really, having a foot in both worlds, it's been really great to see the support, the interplay, the professional societies on our surgical world have been amazingly supportive uh, of the mission, of the science, making sure we forward those lessons learned, validating, vetting, correcting, and helping us bring them forward. Awesome. Sounds good, sir. Um, one of the things that uh, we've kind of been kind of done in the past with uh, a few of these other uh, interviews is I have a duck of random questions. So uh, kind of throwing a curveball out there, uh, not medically related one bit. Um, but it's just kind of to show that even though we put the uniform on, we're people too. Um, so one of the things I do want to ask you is what's something you like that most people don't? Ah, going uphill, big long hills on a bicycle. Sounds good, sir. Thank you. Sir, you must be a fan of the uh, the mountain stages in the Tour de France then. Uh, actually, uh, I am. And one of my life memories, uh, I've had a, dear, a group of dear friends. Uh, we've cycled for the last 30 years or so. And every year, instead of going away and golfing as guys, about eight of us, we would pick a place and go ride our bicycles. And about 10 years ago, we went and hit the Alpe d'Huez famous in all the tours 
the big climbs over in France and it was a lifetime, but yeah. Well, I can appreciate that as a fan of the Tour de France and Alpe d'Huez, especially. Was that 22 turns uh, heading up that, that mountain? You got it exactly right. <laughs> yes. You know, before, I would like to, those who are interested in Army or military medicine, obviously, this is a wonderful program by our Army recruiters, but military medicine, you know, honestly, having had worn two uniforms, I think I, I don't think I'll be joining the Navy before I retire, but military medicine is a, a real privilege. Um, here in my office in front of me, uh, I, I don't have the time to, to spin the cameras, but over on this wall is a picture of a Korean mass unit. Um, I didn't know my father well, but my father was an Army forward artillery officer. And uh, he left uh, when I was a young man before I heard his military stories. But interestingly, about 12 years ago, I met a retired Army artillery officer who was with my dad. And it turns out that they had both gone through ROTC together, and my dad was wounded when they were bugging out their unit. And my dad was re responsible for blowing up the ammo dump, but got burnt in the process. Uh, this guy put my dad out, uh, smothered him out, and um, waited with him uh, until an HH-13 came along, that iconic little bubble helicopter and delivered him to a tent hospital that sits and looks very much like the one that's sitting over there. And interestingly enough, right next to it is a picture of our little forward surgical team in Talil. The configuration of the tent is identical. The only difference is uh, they were army green in Korea and they were kind of a buff khaki uh, in Iraq, but we set them up exactly the same way. I wouldn't be here had there not been army physicians in Korea. Um, long after I'm gone, perhaps somebody will carry on and, uh, and look at a legacy of somebody we brought home. Uh, it, is, it is a privilege unparalleled. I, have, I certainly have gotten much more from my experiences in the military than the military's ever asked for me. So uh, as I look back when I step down and, and retire, uh, each and every one of those seven deployments and the experiences and the people that I was privileged to work with, those will be the memories I carry with me. And it's been a privilege to work with uh, military medics and privilege working with you guys today. Um, I do want to, you know, your audience, uh, the guys will have my email and my telephone cell number available at any time. Uh, if you have questions, I really enjoy talking to you. That's the trauma pager. Um, talking to you guys. Um, I will try to give you it straight. Um, I will tell you the good things and the bad things. Uh, but for me, obviously, the good things have been more than enough. Um, my mementos sitting over my shoulder right behind me, as you can see. So uh, barring any reattacks or further questions. Hey, everyone, as you saw, um, the trauma page went off. So we actually had to, to go ahead and, and let him get going. Uh, so if you do have any questions, like you said, he is available, but um, in, in his best interest, I don't wanna actually publish his, his email address out there. So if you do wanna get a hold of him, if you're an applicant, if you're interested uh, in Army Medicine, anything like that, go ahead and either reach out to us here on YouTube um, or visit one of our other social media platforms. Uh, we have people available to talk to you at all times. So that way uh, we can get your questions answered and, if it's one of those things where we can't answer it, we are 
glad to put you in contact with somebody like Colonel Jay that can actually answer those questions from firsthand experience. But thank you very much. Go ahead and like, subscribe, and leave us a comment. Thank you.